welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Firm. I'm your host, Alex Score. I am joined by founder and CEO of Indigo River, Dina Prastros. Um, who is the first waterfront architect, trailblazing a new category in the industry, waterfront architecture, civil engineering, futurist, climate adaption expert, entrepreneur, and creative original. Dina is driven to boldly transform the built world at the water's edge, specializing in New York Harbor. Welcome inside the firm. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah. So you have a degree in architecture, license in architecture. So you went through the grinding nonsense that is those tests. Congratulations. I absolutely did. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) But you also have a graduate degree in civil engineering. So could you talk about why architecture, you you must have gone to architecture school first. Yeah, I did a five-year undergrad program uh, at NJIT and I finished and almost immediately, actually before I even finished the program, I knew I wanted a more technical understanding and I loved architecture school. I did very well in my my program, uh, but just my own curiosities and securities, I wanted to have a more technical understanding of different structural systems. Colorado Travel was always an inspiration. Um, and so before I even finished my undergrad program, I started taking bridge courses to also get a master's in civil engineering. Um, are you familiar with, and this is just a curious question, is the master's program similar to what you'd have to do with an undergraduate program? Because for example, uh, I teach an engineering department at CU Boulder and it's civil engineering, but it's basically a foundation in, in engineering. Um, so they take a whole bunch of different engineering courses and and have to do that. Did did you have to do a similar thing or was it more focused? So I, I did do something similar. So it's standing completely apart. I mean, I, I overlapped a lot of the programs and took very full schedules and took summer courses as well. But if I had taken the programs completely independently, I would have taken a five-year undergrad for architecture and a two-year master's program for civil engineering. And prior to being able to take some of those master's level program or courses, I would have had to, and I did, uh, take you know higher level math, higher level physics to be able to be eligible to take the master level courses in civil engineering. Right. And, and some people might not know this. If you get a civil engineering degree in college, a lot of structural engineers do that. They go through that yeah. route, take their PE and, and all that. Um, yeah. So did you pursue um, getting your professional, what, the PE, professional yeah. engineering? License? No, I did not. So I, to be truthful, when I finished school, I, I didn't know that I wanted to be licensed um, in either or architecture or engineering. And I didn't I didn't sit for the FE either, which usually uh, engineering students sit either during or right after school while everything is fresh. Um, but I, for the first I'd say eight years of my career, my peers were all engineers. So I worked for six years in, in the field for a contractor as a field engineer, project engineer, quality control manager overseas. Uh, and all of my peers were engineers. I didn't work with any architects, certainly my first job. My second job, I there was one other kind of individual who had architecture background, but by and large, I was working with engineers and it was from 
traditional civil engineers, geotechnical engineers, marine engineers, coastal engineers, kind of an array that I continue to work with now. Uh, but I was the only architect background and I didn't really get, I, I didn't even look to get licensed until I thought, you know, I, I'm in a niche here and there's a specialty, there's an opportunity and I can open a firm, but to do that, I certainly need to be licensed. Um, and so it, it wasn't until, you know, eight, 10 years after school that I even really sat to take the tests and get my license. So um, knowing a little bit more about your background and how engineering slash construction, it seems like it was very construction focused slash problem solving focused. It was, yeah, early on, especially. And then it seemed to, um, to kind of split back off into the architectural realm and come at it from that perspective. It makes sense, but it also doesn't make sense. It makes sense of like, okay, that's the way you're trained. That's the way you think problem solving iteration. But you could have went the other way. You could have went down the PE. The so what made you? What was your decision? You know, so, what was your thought process? I've always identified as an architect, and I I think one of the the main differences is in that you know design element and that iterative element that you touched on, and not necessarily only a problem solving, um, or technical problem solving skill set. And so when I when I finished engineering and yes, I surrounded myself with engineers, I I wanted again as an architect to have a more technical understanding and a more practical understanding. So it wasn't, you know, design top down, forcing things, uh, but really understanding ground up what what are the structures, what are the systems, what are the practicalities of how things go together, who are who is who are the people putting them together in the field and what are what are their thoughts, what are their conversations about, you know, different design schemes and uh, materials and methodologies. And so I it, it really was out of a kind of insecurity slash curiosity that I from this, you know, architecture foundation wanted this more technical understanding, but only to be able to come back to design with that more technical understanding and uh, different range of experiences and exposures. Do you feel that waterfront architecture and design needs a more deeper technical understanding? And and the reason why I ask is because you need a technical understanding for houses. You need them for, you know, four or five stories. Once you get up to like skyscrapers, you, you need even more of a technical understanding. But I, I, so I've worked in New York and I mean, it's engineering heavy on, you know, we do a fancy design at, at Leapskin and then they figure out how to do it. Um, but there's still more of a, hey, a skyscraper can only fit in this form on this lot <laughs> where, <laughs> excuse me, and correct me if I'm wrong, waterfront architecture seems like, hey, it's this whole line that is blurred between the water and uh, you know, land. And it's probably not just continuous on one property, even though it might be because that's who you're working with the client. Um, and it's not gonna be this just, I know that there's probably systems for peers and stuff like that, but it doesn't seem as cookie cutter. It seems like you really need to solve the technical first and then somehow adapt that to humanity, scale, size, people, proportions, all that other stuff too. Um, sure, and you I, might not know that coming just from architecture over. Does yeah, if sense? I would have, it does. And if I would have kind of jumped off from my architecture undergrad education and, you know, maybe jumped right into a firm that did waterfront architecture, maybe I would have had a, you know, a good enough technical understanding, but no firms existed. Um, and I, my general sentiment is that architecture as a profession, yes, we are generalists. Yes, we know a little bit about a lot. 
but I still believe deeply that there is room and opportunity and for the betterment of, you know, what we do, protecting this health, safety, and welfare of the public in the built environment, uh, looking at what that built environment is and specializing in different facets of it. Um, so I, I think certainly having a generous knowledge is helpful. And if if you've gone through the examination process for architecture, it, no matter what your background is, there are things that come up that you've never had exposure to, but you you learn enough to know how to think about them like an architect. And I think that's true also of other fields that are you know atypical, not the normal building architecture, um, but where architects are certainly asserting their agency and uh, having a positive impact on that built environment. Um, tangent thought. <laughs> So I know you probably deal with it, and we can probably go into this later, a, a lot of the wa waterfront architecture, but um, you've probably seen proposals for the past 20 years, and, and a lot of them never come to fruition uh, about making uh, islands floating off cities, the yeah. float, floating cities. And yes. what's kind of funny to me about it is I always love the idea, and it's always funny because it's always California, maybe Florida. I don't know if New York has any of this, um, but it's it's because of location. So from Colorado, I, I drive to Minnesota to see my family every year and then through Iowa, right? So mm -hmm. from Colorado to basically Wisconsin, and then from Colorado up to Canada, there is a lot of space. There is plenty of space. Uh, people do not, I've 20 times, 20 different routes. I always love driving through all the cornfields, but yet there's still this appealing idea of, of, of floating islands or islands that are connected. What is your thought on that? It, it, does any of that come across your desk? Do you see a future yeah. in any of that? Absolutely. Um, I am. Um, I do believe floating, floating structures, floating islands are a great opportunity for the future. And if for no other reason, then a, a lot of what I work with in my space are different vulnerabilities and different environmental hazards, including sea level rise and flooding. And knowing that I think it's something like 80% of our population lives in coastal areas in this country. So if we're looking at that and most of our infrastructure if not all is fixed very little of it is able to adapt to sea level rise uh, but inherently a floating structure does because as the tide rises or as the sea level rises so does the floating structure so there's there's opportunity certainly uh, to look at some of our coastal areas and offshore areas for solutions that are floating. Uh, what what that then does, though, for me is is it really begs the question of where some of these areas. I've seen concepts, you know, out in the middle of the ocean for offshore floating cities, and it it really starts to question, you know, if these aren't international waters, and what are the kind of nationalist questions, and what are the regulatory bodies that have jurisdiction, and and it brings up kind of bigger governmental questions, not necessarily just about the structures, but the structures kind of spark that that thought of, you know, well then what. Yeah. Then so you get Bitcoiners yeah, involved. The <laughs> Absolutely. And then once you get then Bitcoiners have, involved, then it goes yeah, crazy. Yeah, Peter Thiel build, building off the coast of California. Yeah, you have a lot of that. That's kind of um, abstract and people don't take it seriously. But I, I think there are roots there for, you know, seeds for the future. So um, so you honestly think, and, and I do too, even, even knowing, you know, what I know about the Midwest, I, I still see it as an appealing idea. Um, so you, do you think it's something that could be practical um, or actually that, What's the likelihood of something like that happening in the next 10 years or 20 years? Uh, I think so. I think it depends on the the population size that we're looking at, because there's a lot of conversation around migration also and climate migration mm -hmm. and climate refugees. And so there's certainly opportunity there. There's there's also plenty of, as you said, untapped land 
so there are opportunities there as well to to relocate people, which is a kind of a polarizing topic at large. But within within the next 10 years, I mean, there it, it depends on the scale, because there certainly are different modules now that are available that aren't they aren't classified as vessels. They're, they're classified as, you know, floating homes or, or whatnot. And they have pneumatic pumps that'll elevate the the structure above if there's a hurricane or something so that it's not subject to wave forces. So there are structures out there in their infancy for smaller scale applications. Uh, it's a matter of thinking of, you know, well, what if we do this for a whole city or a whole town or a whole village and, and start there and then iterate on it. And I'll, as a as a tangent, but related, uh, I was a keynote this past weekend for a, it was called the Future Cities um, competition in New Jersey. It's a national competition, but it was the New Jersey branch of it. And it was middle schoolers that were looking at, you know, future concepts for cities and they had models. They were phenomenal, super inspirational. Um, but almost all of them incorporated floating cities, which was interesting, especially interesting to me. But even without having my background, I think it was a, a key point just to think, you know, these are the next generation and that's what they're looking at for 100 years out. Yeah. Um, are you seeing and this will relate to uh, online question. Are you? Are you seeing a trend on these floating cities to have the structures independent of the infrastructure, meaning what you were talking about floating, um, or to have them sort of locked? Um, because you know, I'm thinking waves and and and, mm -hmm. and all that as as more of a superstructure. Um, so they have both. The, they, uh, there are there are systems that are floating. It depends on the size and it depends on the wave climate, certainly. Uh, but there are other systems that are more they're they're adaptable to different elevations, but they're more fixed on a routine basis. So they have the ability to be raised over time, but on a day-to-day, -day, they are fixed, if that makes sense. So they're not yeah. floating like a, a ferry landing that you're on and you can feel, you know, the waves rocking it. They're they're elevated above the water, but they have the ability to elevate even higher as needed. Are they on piers, caissons, whatever you want to call, piles. or are they like yeah. piles? They're so on I, I, actually two systems. So piles, certainly for a more fixed system, piles that they can kind of jack up. Like if you've ever seen waterfront construction, they have jack up barges that they can have a, a still platform for a crane to be on while they're setting a piece. Um, but then after you know the shift is done, they can lower the barge again, and it's you know it's floating. It's still on piles, but it's moving up and down with the the wave environment. Uh, the other application. Certainly they have catenary anchors that are, you know, underwater and they have multiple of them and they have enough flex in them to be able to move with the wave environment. Um, so there, there are different systems out there and they're, none of them are, are new per se, but the application of how we look to use them certainly is and will be. What is your opinion of uh, some of the, the islands in Dubai, uh, the ones detached like the earth, the palms, there's multiple palms. I'm sure there's some other ones. Um, so two-part question. <laughs> uh, what's your opinion of those? Is that a concept that could be applied over to the United States? Let's take Florida, California, or, you know, not to negate North Carolina or any of those other states, but let's just start there. Uh, possibly Texas, why not? Um, to take a similar idea, um, but could you use a similar idea, but detach it? Meaning, you know, um, hey, it, it's, 800 to a thousand feet off, but it's still using, it's still making islands because I think one of the appeals of, uh, offshoring is, Hey, <laughs> the government isn't quick <laughs> to change laws, change policies, to adapt or anything like that. And that's one use case. 
is, hey, foreigners that are close that might be able to um, easily be in the time zone, something like that. But let's just stick to the two questions of what's your thoughts about those developments? And then are they adaptable or practical here? So certainly inspiration to draw from on different levels, but essentially what you're talking about is filling, filling the waterways or carving, carving land to allow for new canal systems. Um, and that's not necessarily new either. I mean, certainly making it in the shape of, you know, a plan of the, the earth or a palm tree or whatever adds, you know, from space, you can see it. Great. Okay. There's aerials of it, but the, and we've participated in competitions in the Middle East also where we look at either carving out land or filling land or filling islands that are, they're not floating structures, they're islands, they're filled with material and then we build on them. Um, so that's, I don't think it's particularly new or groundbreaking. Uh, in this country here, one of the challenges that we have is our, our regulatory system around the waterfront and around the habitat and the environment is so stringent. Um, and so filling, I mean, if it's, it's one thing, if it's like beach replenishment or renourishment that it's been, you know, eroding because of the wave climate and because of the wave patterns uh, and, and filling in coastal areas, that, that's one thing. But certainly filling new islands or creating new land uh, is frowned upon by many of our regulatory bodies. <laughs> not so a it, thing it's, the it's government's going to let you. It's an uphill battle and for, for different reasons, but it's, yeah, it's not, um, it's not a quick fix to say. Okay. Uh, noted. Um, going back onto land, um, what are some of the things that you're seeing or doing to deal with the waterfront issues? Um, and it is the main strategy, let's say sea level rises or fluctuations in storms to stop and keep that water out? Or is there a secondary, and this is literally coming from zero knowledge whatsoever. Yeah. So if any of these questions seem dumb, it's because they probably are. Not at all. No. <laughs> is, I, um... is there a secondary well... like, hey, buildings should be able to uh, keep water out or adapt to water pressure, or, you know? float in a crazy idea, but then you're disconnecting from the infrastructure. So what's going on there? So on, on the waterfront, yes, we see we see different extreme and harsh environments, natural environments and hazards. Uh, so the, the waterfront in general is a very vulnerable typology. And because of that, we do have lots of different solutions for, I would say, working with the water, not necessarily working to keep the water out, but anticipating that, sure, sea level will rise or the, the wave climate will be so extreme that the water will overtop whatever the infrastructure is, if it's a bulkhead or a seawall or a um, whatever that coastline or shoreline structure is. So we have a very, I'll say... Um, organic thought process around allowing water to inundate because we're not going to at large design things that are stronger than nature at some point in time nature will win uh, nature is persistent it is stronger than any forces that we will ever be able to sustain so it's something that it's a, it's more a mentality and we do apply it to buildings upland and so because we're always working on with next to near the water when we work on upland, even landlocked sites, but we're looking particularly at flood inundation or the stormwater drainage and, and what's happening on king tides and why are these buildings flooding, we start to look at, there's you know two methodologies. You dry flood proof where you keep the water out, which is by and large uh, the last 
couple generations, that has been the strategy of water doesn't come in buildings. Uh, and, and more recently, we look to, sometimes we require waivers or variances to do this depending on the use of the building and the occupancy of the building, but we'll look to allow the water to come in in different ways or to strategize where we want the water to go and keep some areas dry, but allow other areas to get wet. And so there's kind of sacrificial spaces that we look to create. And that that methodology, I feel, is more is more recent. It's not, again, that's, you know, since Middle Ages, that's been in architecture that sometimes there's different extreme environments where the water comes in and then it recedes out. Fine. The the recent application and the recent challenge is because we have so many codes and we have FEMA and we have NFIP, we have underwriting from federal banks for loans to do construction and what they require for flood, the flood mitigation and the codes around the flood prevention are very stringent and, and by and large black and white unless you have the creativity to see otherwise and apply for variances and waivers, which is often what we find ourselves doing is finding a way to allow nature to do what it's going to do anyway and not fight it, just to allow it and focus where that's going to happen so that it's not causing an excessive damage or putting anyone in harm's way. Uh, doesn't Florence, or maybe I'm getting the city wrong in Italy. Um, Venice. Venice. Venice is a canal city. Yeah. Um, and doesn't it flood and come up two to three feet and just yep. the shops are just like people are having yep. coffee. Yep. <laughs> in in a foot or two. Um, More extreme lately, but it, it's always it's it's had that design and those and much of that construction has been around for you know hundreds of years, not decades that we have kind of in this country that our infrastructure is getting replaced already. You know, within a fifty year time span, we're looking at five hundred years of infrastructure improvements. Yeah. When that happens in Venice, is that a seasonal thing? Is that a tide thing? It's a tide thing, and it is happening more and more frequently as related to sea level rise at large. Gotcha. Um, have you looked at this? Is I want to say it's only two years old, but I actually don't know the time frame, especially since like COVID interrupted everyone's life. It's like, was this pre COVID? Time or warp. <laughs> yeah, time warp. Did that year exist? Who knows? Uh, <laughs> Bjork Engels, big architecture group, if that's what they're still called, did some sort of proposal for New York City, the waterfront. And I think one of their ideas was expanding out and making a green buffer zone. Could you talk about that, the practicality of that, um, the realisticness of that? Um, what are your thoughts? Sure. So we, so I, I think what you're talking about is the Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project, which they had in its concept, I, I believe it was called the Big U. Um, and that is a project that's actually a project that we work on. We have a very limited scope in what we do on it, and it's more related to the construction side of sequencing and logistics um, and barge support. But the... The premise of that was, yeah, building a buffer zone, building a perimeter barrier that would take that wave force or that wave action and keep it out. And it was met, it was, it was a polarizing concept and it's been, um, you know, gone through design development. And so it's not that they've built out now, but they've figured out different zones that they can contain um, or protect more, more tightly. Um, and that's, the idea of building out isn't new either, and, and not even in New York City. I mean, much of Battery Park City is fill, and that's fill from the original World Trade Center tower construction. And so that's, it's harder now to fill out and change the landform that is Manhattan or any of the New York City shoreline, which there's 520 miles of, but it's, it is something that is done on occasion. Uh, usually regulatory bodies will require mitigation whether on-site or off-site, as you start to encroach into the waterways. Is that, um, 
I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for all my uh, mm-hmm. amateur questions, but like, by filling out, what are you doing? Are you just like, are you capturing the waves? Are you making it higher um, for it to crest over? What's the mechanism that that's protecting the city there? So it, it could be a number of things. It could also depend on what the programming is or what the elevation uh desires are for what elevation you want the land to be at or what you want the access to be if you're allowing access to enable you know enable people to get into the water um it it can also do with what what is happening upland and what buffer zone you need for a setback from the upland from the from the coastline and so if that coastline changes your setback can change and so there there are things that go through a lot of different regulatory bodies and agencies having jurisdiction but one of the environmental bodies that pushes back most is Department of Environmental Conservation because they're losing habitat when individuals fill out into the waterway for whatever reason, whether it is to change the elevation or to change the access or to change the parameters for an upland building of where it can be positioned or what size it can be. Uh, So there there are various motivations for filling out, as I'm calling it, but changing the the edge of the water condition. And, and sometimes it could be that you're not same way that on a, on a site or I don't, I don't know which version of the architecture exam you had done, but do you remember like the cut fill question where you, the goal was to balance and equalize, you know, the cut and fill on any given site. So you're not carting away or disposing yeah. of materials and you're keeping the, the native environmental habitat kind of holistically there. Um, same thing with the water. So if you're filling out in one area, you're probably cutting back elsewhere. And and you may also do that to change, you know, if you're trying to protect and create a marine environment, you may create a key or a wharf or something that blocks wave action from entering the marina. So you're changing the shoreline, the natural topography of what that shape and what the um, hydro- hydro- hydrography underneath the shoreline also of what that riverbed looks like. Uh, to change the wave action or to change the depth for boats coming in, vessels coming in, vessels leaving. Uh, so there are a number of reasons that you can change what that edge looks like in plan, as well as the elevation of that edge as it moves from water upland. Gotcha. Um, changing kind of topics. Uh I found this on your website. It was a statement. I'll read it. Um, <laughs> as we enter the fourth industrial revolution defined by technology, which fuses the physical, digital, and biological worlds, we believe that now more than ever, a single idea can have a butterfly effect, um, that each project can create global impact. Um, so my question is, I, I've heard you talk about before, but recreating the architecture role in society. To you, what would that look like? So I wouldn't ever want to self-limit what the profession can do. I think the way that, I believe that the way that architecture, architects think is unique and there is value to society for it. Um, So again, bringing us back to what an architect is licensed to do, not necessarily what the public thinks we do or what even students signing up to be an architect um, understand at that time. I certainly didn't, but we're licensed to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public in the built environment. And so a couple pieces of that, one is, you know, the health and safety aspects of that, of of what we're, you know, we're protecting health and safety of the public. A lot of that, and especially recently, and I anticipate even more in the future, a lot of that is regulated by code. So it's no longer that we're, you know, designing from scratch and we don't have standards or guidelines or codes to tie us back to or use as a baseline. Um, So I believe that the architect's role in the future will be 
still focused on health and safety, but there will be a lot more tools at our disposal and resources at our disposal to help that. And certainly with the advancement of digitization and the, and the different tools that we have, uh, being able to automate that and certainly looking at AI as well for some of that, that we're not, we don't need to come up with so many different um, concepts. So we can set the parameters that we know are fine-tuned for health and safety and have them out, have AI output, you know, thousands of different options and then rank them based on our parameters. So we can start to focus more on the outcome and not necessarily all of the early preliminary work that we can now automate. The other part of that is the welfare component. So welfare is really hard to define. Uh, and when we look at society and what what is protecting the welfare of of the public look like? What does that mean for an architect? Well, what are applications and and not malintended, but what are applications where we've we've had poor results? Certainly, we have you know zoning scenarios where highways went up and we had different zoned areas and we have different communities and disadvantaged communities, and that wasn't intentional, but we've observed it. And so certainly, when we look at welfare, I think planning is a big part of that. I also think on a much smaller scale, we have to be as architects more active in our regulation, in our codes, writing our codes, rewriting our codes. Because when we look at um, stadiums built in the 50s that were based on codes from the 40s, and we go to these stadiums now 50, 60 years later with our families, and they're only changing tables that were specced and by code, by law, required to be in the women's changing room, that has an effect on today's society. Unless we go back and update our code and update our venues and update all of, you know, the 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 restrooms to have you know equal amount of changing rooms that responsibility falls disproportionately to women oftentimes and that's a direct result of our built environment reflecting a code that at the time it was normal that women were you know home home homemakers and the, the men were not and they were at work and so when they went out to a, a sporting event or stadium together these responsibilities for childcare still fell to the women that's outdated in today's society well we haven't been proactive enough as a profession to update our codes, to update the regulation, to change the guidelines and overwrite them to reflect today's values. And it's something that's always changing. We can't pinpoint what welfare looks like, but we can certainly look back and say, well, we were going in the wrong direction or we didn't self, we didn't uh, course correct quick enough. And so I think there are a lot of opportunities to assert our agency in other ways from the, from you know, the typical role of the architect designing, whether it's residential or commercial, whatever those buildings are, there are other applications for our skills that include in the regulatory environment and include when we talk about built environment, that doesn't only mean buildings, that's anything man-made that includes systems, that includes the digital world, the virtual world. And we look at some of the, the madness that's going on with social media and its effect on especially young children and teenagers today. Well, who designing those systems, who designing that built environment was looking out for the health, safety, and welfare of the public. There were no architects per se in that model. And so I, I think it's, we need to charge ourselves with modernizing our, you know, leveraging our skill set to modernize how we can assert our agency for the betterment of the public. And so I, I think there are a lot of different applications, certainly, uh, you know, to continue within the built environment as, you know, traditionally defined to be buildings, but certainly infrastructure, certainly the digital world, certainly the regulatory world. There are a lot of different ways for architects to assert agency, again, for the betterment, not only of the public, but for the planet and for the profession as well. So uh, I want to 
expand on that and then and then circle back and and, and really focus yeah. on that because to to me where when you started expanding on digital um and health safety and welfare i immediately went to um sort of our messed up uh food guidelines oh my um, gosh absolutely our food systems yes our, our food systems and there was a recent study it was something like cocoa puffs um were more healthy so this is a processed, highly sugar thing than than lean chicken. And I'm not making a judgment on vegan or not or animal, you know. But yeah. it is, if if everyone was true in their heart, a very highly sugared processed cocoa puffs is not healthier than you than chicken. Like the, right. <laughs> I don't care what study they did, it is incorrect, right? Um, so so we could keep expanding that, but let's say you know. Uh, Whoever the next president of the United States is, and society is getting so crazy, it becomes a dictator, and Dina's in charge of this now. So you got tasked to be in charge of this. And I'm not asking for solutions, but um, meaning like, hey, change exactly this. What would you start to set up? Because I think what you're getting for, and and there's real big challenges in the, the code. There's real big challenges in the supply system. Not just that that's such a big thing, but like you can only build what you can make practically. You know, like there might be a, a great solution, but unless a factory is making that, that's going to be so expensive that even though it's healthier for the climate, better for the people, all that, it might be literally 1000 times more expensive, even though it's using simple ingredients, because there's not a factory making a million tons of that, right? That would then help out. But going back would... um so I understand why code is, I understand why they keep glomming on, but sometimes it can come to a detriment. Would um, and, and this comes with, I'm in Colorado, so there's a lot of wells, right? And uh, the and I honestly think we should be, if we're gonna use oil and we are gonna use oil that I think it's in America and we should uh, have it come from America. But they'll say, hey, these are all safe. We have 400 different regulations and checkpoints. So I went and looked at it because like I live where these things are. And like 90% of them is, oh, is it uh, painted correctly? It's like, <laughs> I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned right. about the gas coming, you know, like I'm concerned about this other stuff. So, and, and maybe I'm spoon feeding the solution too much. So feel free to tangent or say no, but would you, one idea be, hey, all these codes that have very specific things, if we focus on health, safety and welfare, and re-looked at it and rewrote it, it might actually get to the point and allow some creativity. Obviously, there's a cost of that that people will take advantage of that. What's your thoughts on the ramblings? I well, one thing I want to zero in on is your your comment because in many ways you're right, but I would challenge the way that we the way that we operate in our in our value system. So you mentioned eating healthy at its core is more expensive. Well, no, no, I don't think it is. Well, well, no, it, and it, it can be, but in, in what unit of measure are we only talking money or are we talking our health as individual humans, our health as society, our health as a planet? I think there are a lot of different units of measures and values that we have to layer on. And we cannot only be looking at, the monetary of the expense in terms of dollars. Um, so that's one just kind of mindset shift that I think as a, as a as a country certainly we could benefit from of not only considering and ensure it's it's easy to say when you when you have money or when you don't have money. Well, yes, but the our habits 
we eat a lot of processed food and it's not good for us. And it's, it does affect us. And the long-term implications are, you know, maybe it's not this generation, but another generation will pick up the tab in the healthcare. And we look at what happened certainly in the pandemic with regards to supply chain of demand and what's available and what the lead times were and what the, what the carbon footprint was of getting materials here. And it started to, you know, really exemplify different broken areas within our system that we hadn't we hadn't had a reason not that we didn't have a reason but we hadn't taken the opportunity to really look deeply at um and so certainly i think a, a large part of a more positive future would be to localize a lot of our resources and localize a lot of our agriculture and localize that process and and reconnect with what our food is, not if, if you're familiar with Michael Pollan, not food like substances, but what food is and where it comes from and what the nutrients are in it and how you can look at two different packets of chicken and one is, you know, raised in a, in a factory and the other is free range organic. And sure, it'll say the same protein, it'll say the same, you know, the nutri nutrition label will be the same, but the quality of those nutritional items are completely different and your body's ability to metabolize them and and get nourishment from them is complete a completely different outcome and so we've we've often standardized things to make them black and white even with our codes of you know check the box here or there but then we're not giving ourselves like you said the freedom to be creative to really get to the better results because we're we're shortcutting a lot of things with you know checking these boxes or it applies or it doesn't but if we are more involved in our own, especially as architects, more involved in politics, I think it would do well for the world um, because we do see a lot of these different systems. We are generous in many regards, but the way it comes together and the advantage that we have within society is unlike any other profession. And we're not certainly not recognized as that, but we we add value. And I would a whole nother podcast topic on on how we value our own services and what the business model is for architecture and why that's broken. But we certainly can look to be more creative in the way that we assert our agency and the way that we derive value for ourselves and for our, our communities for it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So um, going back, what would be kind of your first step or first action item moving towards this way that would make an, an impact? So localizing resources would be kind of the, the header topic, and that would come in the form of not only certainly localized agriculture, but also emergency management centers, because every every zone and around our country, we have so many different vulnerabilities and hazards that we deal with that there isn't a, you know, one size fits all to blanket, mm -hmm. you know, broad brush the entire country with. There are different emergency scenarios that we all face. And so having localized emergency hubs that you're not waiting on this national FEMA to come in and save you. There are localized hubs that are prepared for the hazards in your area and that you're a community member and you're trained in them. You know how to help, you know where to go for help. That kind of first step of localizing where you're drawing from, I believe would help. And it also in terms of our, our carbon, carbon footprint sustainability, uh, but it allow us and enable us to be more resilient in the long run. I agree. Do you also agree then uh, for localizing or bringing back manufacturing? I certainly think there are applications. I mean, there are, I would say if we can focus more thoughtfully on globalizing information and sharing information and then localizing our resources and localizing that that supply chain for what our area needs, 
we will be better off. Absolutely. Well, great. Well, thank you for being on the show. Uh, I Let's leave with this. Any other thoughts that you want um, our listeners to know or that we didn't explore? And then after that, uh, how to connect um, social media or anything uh, that you want to shout out that way? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I think one, one thing that um, can put into perspective some of some of what we've talked been talking about abstractly is to to think very critically about ourselves and how and specifically where we're spending our money because if we follow how we're spending our money we'll see where our impacts lie so if we're buying and I'm, I buy things on Amazon sure but if we're buying everything on Amazon and everything from these big box big box manufacturers that money isn't going into our local community and there would be a greater benefit if it were. And I'm, I mean, again, capitalist America, all for small businesses, and we must invest in them. And so where we follow our money and where we can look at how we're spending our money, I think most critically will help us understand our behavioral and our habits and why things are trending the way that they are. This is a, a controversial <laughs> statement, but I believe it to be extremely true. You have way more power in your dollar than your vote. Yeah. You mean if you used your dollar right, your vote really probably wouldn't matter. Yeah, um, I follow that. <laughs> um, okay, where to uh, connect or follow or see your work? Uh, so I'm certainly my our website, indigoriver.com. Um, I'm available on, on LinkedIn, on social media. My handle is, I think, just my name, Dina Prastos. Also, uh, we have Indigo River on social media and in Instagram and um, Twitter. So yeah, I'm around. All right, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Alex. My pleasure.